The U.S. Supreme Court today ruled that the death penalty does not necessarily represent cruel and unusual punishment and that it can be a deterrent to crime. By 7 to 2, the judges upheld the death penalty in Florida, Georgia, and Texas. Other states may be affected in a similar way. But by 5 to 4, the court struck down capital punishment laws in North Carolina and Louisiana. That ruling could prevent still other states from invoking their own death penalty laws. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. Tonight, the death penalty in the case of Gregg versus Georgia in 1976. As you heard from that news report at the opening, it was a complicated case with a complicated outcome. The laws in three states, Georgia, Florida, and Texas, were upheld, while the laws in Louisiana and North Carolina had to be rewritten. It didn't settle the death penalty debate in the United States either, which has been going on ever since. Tonight, we are going to talk with two people who spend a lot of time thinking about this uh, part of our American justice system, and uh, they're going to help us understand these cases what the mood in American society was like at the time, and also what the legacy of these decisions have been. Let me introduce Carol Steicher, who is a professor at Harvard Law School. She clerked once for Justice Thurgood Marshall in the 86 to 87 term, and she's the co-author with her brother of a book called Courting Death, the Supreme Court and Capital Punishment. Kent Scheidegger is legal director at the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation, which is based in Sacramento. It's an organization that advocates in favor of the death penalty and for a more swift-acting criminal justice system. He and his organization have filed more than 100 briefs in Supreme Court cases. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Well, Thank as you. we start out, the Supreme Court has considered many cases on the death penalty. What is it about Greg v. Georgia that makes this a landmark case? We'll start with you, Kent. Well, the court squarely confronted the question of whether the death penalty per se is constitutional or not. Uh, most other cases have involved particular procedures, particular statutes, uh, but this case did squarely grapple with the fundamental question of the constitutionality of the death penalty. What else should we know about this case's status as we start out? Well, four years previously, the Supreme Court had struck down capital punishment as it was then practiced in the United States, so it abolished capital punishment. And had the court not backtracked in Gregg, and reinstated the American death penalty, the United States would have abolished death, the death penalty roughly on the time frame of our uh, Western democratic peers. So today, the United States is the only country in the world that still has the death penalty, uh, the only uh, Western democracy. And we would not be in that situation had the Furman decision not been um, overturned by Greg. We're, uh, in this series, we're spending time uh, learning about the Constitution, and it, there are three amendments that really have something to do with this case. First of all, the Fifth Amendment, uh, no person shall be heard, uh, held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Also, there's the 14th Amendment, because the laws were different in, in different states. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. 
nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. And finally, the Eighth Amendment, which says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. In uh, Greg v. Georgia, were all of these constitutional amendments under consideration or uh, only one or some? Well, because the court was reconsidering the, the decision in Furman, mostly the Eighth Amendment was at stake. That was the basis of the ruling in Furman versus Georgia, which was set aside in 1976. But the Eighth Amendment only applies to the states as opposed to the federal government through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So both the Eighth and the 14th Amendment were in play in 1976. An additional reason there is that the uh, due process and equal protection clause arguments had been considered before by the Supreme Court in 1971 in Magotha versus California. And the court had been upheld against attack under those clauses of the Constitution. We're going to uh, start by listening <laughs> to two justices, uh, Justices Breyer and uh, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, talking about the definition of cruel and unusual in the Eighth Amendment. We'll hear what they have to say. Let's listen. What about practices that were followed at the time of the founding? Ear-notching, the pillory. If, if, if cases like that arose, uh, would, would you find likely that they're constitutional? I'd find they're constitutional and stupid. Listen, a lot of stuff that is constitutional, <laughs> an enormous amount of stuff that's constitutional is stupid. That, that cannot be the test. No, Whether but the word really in the Constitution. stupid. The word in the Constitution is cruel, and the word is unusual. It's possible that over time, people have a different idea of what's cruel. That doesn't mean that that thing isn't cruel, because somebody in the 18th century thought it wasn't. It may be cruel, but the word hasn't changed its meaning. He talks as though, as though it's a one-way one street. You know, we get more gentle over age, not more cruel. But it's not a, 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 a one-way street. If you think cruel is whatever you think is cruel, not what the founders thought was cruel, mm. Mm. What, if, what if you begin to think that things aren't cruel that they thought were cruel? You know, they thought thumbscrews were bad. But, you know, nowadays, what the heck? We have a more violent society. Yeah, thumbscrews aren't so bad. Is that all that the Eighth Amendment means? To thine own self be true? Don't do anything that you think is cruel. We had our own notions of cruel, but oh, we don't want to bind you to our notions of cruel. That can't be what it meant. It was obviously meant to, to set a standard. And once you agree to that, it sets a standard in both directions. That's a great piece of tape because you really see the arguments on the court uh, about uh, the, the meaning of the Constitution. So when you watch this for both of you, what, what's your reaction? Well, I think the real question, and it's an ongoing debate in law, is how much we should interpret the Constitution the way the framers would have interpreted it in 1789 or 1791 when the Constitution was ratified. And I always think of an analogy such as this one. I suppose you're great-grandmother left a bequest in 1930 for uh, her children and children's children to uh, use the money to eat healthy food. Well, back in 1930 or so, healthy food was red meat, full-fat dairy, and eggs. And suppose today you're trying to, you know, be faithful to that bequest to use it for healthy food. It might not be considered to be 
steak and eggs and, uh, and milk, uh, full-fat milk. So it, the idea is you're being faithful to the meaning of, a const- of the Constitution or a, a, a will if you interpret it over time as ideas change. Do we have any sense from writings of the founders, the drafters of the Constitution, on what they put into this uh, amendment, what, what their thought of cruel and unusual meant to well, them? <clears throat> uh, Justice Scalia's view in that tape is a bit of an outlier. That, that wasn't the argument uh, of the uh, defenders of the statutes in, in the Gregg cases. Uh, <clears throat> but um, as far as what the founders meant, uh, I think they were using a term that was understood in English law, and unusual meant outside the normal usages of the law. And I, I do think that unusual can change over time. I do think that the practices they were mentioning on the tape there uh, were usual at the time of the founding, but are unusual today, having been universally rejected. Uh, but that's a different thing from saying that the, that the court can decide on its own that something is cruel and unusual, even though it's the law in most states and widely adopted. The death penalty has been part of our society since its earliest days. The first recorded execution was in 1608 in Jamestown, Virginia, in the settlement there. Captain George Kendall was executed by firing squad for spying on behalf of the Spanish and allegedly trading with native tribes. To learn more about the history of the death penalty in the United States, we visited the Alcatraz East Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, formerly the Crime and Punishment Museum here in D.C., and learned more details about capital punishment over the centuries. Alcatraz East Crime Museum is located in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, We used to be in Washington, D.C. Well, capital punishment has always been working through an effort to try to make uh, execution more humane. So in our capital punishment gallery, we have discussing methods that were used in Europe, such as burning at the stake and beheadings, drawn and quartered, all those gory things. Coming to the United States, first it was hangings, um, but each successive method was trying to find ways to make execution more humane and more painless. The electric chair from the Tennessee State Prison uh, is called Old Smoky. It was used from 1916 to 1960 in 125 executions. It was made from uh, wood from the former gallows um, and made by the prisoners. The electric chair, uh, it's often sort of said as a joke, but it is true that it was uh, developed by a dentist, um, modifying a dentist chair, because he felt that using the modern invention of electrocution would be more humane than hanging. The first uh, execution with the electric chair uh, was in 1890 at Auburn Prison in New York. A man named uh, William uh, Kemmler was executed for murdering his wife with a hatchet, but it didn't quite go as planned. It didn't go as fast as they were anticipating. Um, George Westinghouse said of the execution that they would have done better if they just used an axe. This gas chamber is a reproduction based on the chambers in Wyoming in New Mexico. So if you look up photos of those, it does look very similar because it's based on the originals. The gas chamber was only used relatively briefly. Uh, It was first used in Nevada in 1924, Uh, but they they first tried using it by filling um, a cell of a prisoner with gas that they were trying to kill him while he slept, but because it wasn't airtight, 
the air escaped was not exactly safe for the prison guards and other employees. Uh, so they worked a lot at refining that method, uh, but it didn't really, it never really caught on because partly because of the the danger that it posed to witnesses and guards. Guards really weren't comfortable with it, and it took a lot longer uh, than than they originally anticipated. So it never it never fully replaced the electric chair, and electric chairs were still used commonly as an alternative. And later on in our program, we'll return to Alcatraz East to learn more about later methods of execution in the United States. So uh, I've got three cases of note, uh, earlier capital punishment cases, Powell v. Alabama in 1932, Magaltha versus California in 71, and the Furman case, which you mentioned in 72. Uh, what should we know about those earlier cases? Uh, well, Powell um, did require... A lawyer, an appointed lawyer for indigent defendants who are facing capital punishment. Uh, they reserved the question of whether appointed counsel would be required in non-capital cases and, of course, decided that later. That's one of your other landmark cases. Um, the Magatha case, as I mentioned earlier, uh, addressed the question of whether the system of unguided discretion in juries, that is, they had the authority to decide capital punishment or not once they convicted of murder uh, without any guidance or, or instruction, whether that violated the uh, due process or equal protection clauses. That was uh, decided uh, the year before Furman and decided six to three um, in favor of upholding those systems. And then Furman came along the very next year and uh, accepted by a five to four margin, very largely the same argument rejected just the year before in Magatha, although under the Eighth Amendment rather than the other clauses of the Constitution. What was happening to public opinion in that short period of time uh, that uh, the, the court was taking up these cases and actually changing its position? Well, public <clears throat> opinion in the United States mirrored public opinion in the world around the death penalty in the 1960s. The death penalty came under increasing attack, and many of our peer countries, for example, England, abolished the death penalty in the 1960s, uh, and that was the beginning of a, a strong movement in Europe uh, and elsewhere to abolish the death penalty. So uh, the uh, Gallup polling organization showed that uh, for the first time in history, uh, more people opposed the death penalty than supported it in 1966. So I think many people thought that we were coming to the end of the use of capital punishment in the United States. The, uh, the, the Gallup poll graph uh, actually kind of mirrors the crime rates. If you plot the crime rates on the uh, the homicide rates on the same poll uh, graph as the Gallup poll support for the death penalty, you see they tend to rise and fall together. So, a question for both of you, and as we try to uh, teach people about how the court operates, uh, is the court uh, the, the justices will always tell you they're immune to public opinion. Some of them try not to follow the news and that sort of thing. But in fact, especially in this case, do they? really take the temperature of the American public as they're deciding these cases or decide to consider them? Well, I'm sure they do. And I think in particular, when they're considering cases under the Eighth Amendment, uh, which deals with cruel and unusual punishments, but the court had said for decades that the test for whether something was cruel and unusual punishment was whether it violated the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. So it was under the Eighth Amendment that the court took the temperature of prevailing uh, uh, attitudes. Uh, what uh, was your opinion on this? Well, the court does 
take into consideration and did take into consideration in the uh, Gregg opinion the legislative reaction to Furman and the fact that so many states had reinstated their death penalty laws after Furman. I think that was an important gauge for the court of what is considered acceptable and what is unusual in our society today. How many states did react? Uh, and, 35 and states plus the Congress. And, and what should we interpret from that? Well, there was absolutely a backlash to Furman uh, in the 1970s, and I think it was the timing of that decision that the court had come to its decision in the, about the death penalty at a time of greatly rising crime and fear of terrorism. And I think had the court decided, made the same decision at a different period in time, we might not have seen the same kind of backlash. Um, the Georgia case, which gave the entire decision its name, involved mm -hmm. Troy Leon Gregg. What should we know about it? Well, he was uh, hitchhiking, and uh, two men picked up Gregg and another man as they were hitchhiking. Um, one of the men happened to have a, a large wad of cash on him, which uh, he managed to let Greg see. Um, at one point, they decide to take a pit stop and go off down a bank on the side of the road, the, the two men, the driver and his friend. And as they come back up, um, Greg shoots and kills them both and takes the car and the, the wad of money. Um, another case is the Profit case from Florida. Uh, the Prophet case was a burglary in which Prophet stabbed the homeowner through the heart with a butcher knife. Not too many details are known about that case, or at least not in the opinions. Uh, the third case is uh, Jurek or Urek. Um, <clears throat> he uh, had expressed a desire to have sex with young girls. He kidnapped a 10-year-old girl, Wendy Adams, driving her away from a public park, uh, screaming, help me, help me. Took her out to a place near the river and... What happened there is disputed, but in any case, he strangled her and threw her body in the river. You've got two cases to tell us about. One is the Louisiana case with Stanislaus Roberts, and the other is North Carolina's case with James Tyrone Woodson. Well, Roberts was convicted uh, of murdering a gas station attendant named Richard Lowe in Lake Charles, Louisiana, in 1974. And James Woodson <clears throat> in North Carolina... Uh, was uh, convicted of uh, playing a part in a murder. He, his part was to drive the getaway car. It was his co-defendant who arm-robbed a store and killed the store owner, a Shirley Butler, in Dunn, North Carolina. But under the law of uh, North Carolina at the time, uh, if someone died during the course of a felony, that was so-called felony murder, and everyone involved... Uh, in the crime, whether or not they were the actual killers, were considered murderers. And in both of those states, Louisiana and North Carolina, under the new laws that were passed after the Furman decision <clears throat> in 1972, the death penalty was mandatory. So that this was never given to the jury to decide whether there would be a death penalty uh, delivered in those cases. It was mandated by statute. If you were convicted of a capital crime, you would automatically be sentenced to death. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. So what is the legal difference in the two states, Louisiana and North Carolina, versus the, the three, which ended up being the split decision? It's a mandatory uh, sentence upon conviction for a particular crime. The death sentence automatically follows, versus the guided discretion approach, where the jury is allowed to decide, but given guidance on how to approach its job. So that sets the stage for a split decision on this. How often do um, the, does the court take 
cases uh, in block like this, so taking five together. That's quite unusual. Yeah. I don't know of any other case where they've taken that many. Do we know block. why they did it? I think probably to get a spectrum because there was a, a variety of legislative reactions to, to the Furman decision. The Furman case had left the law so confused because the court had issued five separate opinions that nobody really knew what the law was, nobody knew what was required or permitted. And so there was a lot of different laws in a lot of different states and they wanted to take a spectrum uh, to sort it all out. On to the court in 1976. Uh, the uh, Eisenhower appointees include uh, William Brennan and Potter Stewart. The Kennedy appointees, uh, Brian, Byron Wizard White. Johnson appointee, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Nixon appointee, uh, the Chief Justice, Warren Berger, along with Harry Blackman, Lewis Powell, and William Rehnquist, who would someday become chief himself. And Ford appointee, and, and President Ford was in office in 76, was Chief uh, John Paul C Stevens. Um, the oral arguments were heard over two days, March 30th and uh, 31st, and uh, they had uh, more than four hours of argument. Now, is that surprising considering the number of cases? It reflects the number of cases. Uh, you have a prosecution and defense attorney for each case, and then there were two friend-of-the-court arguments, one by Solicitor General Bork for the United States and one by uh, uh, the California Attorney General. What, uh, for a question for both of you, uh, what was the uh, overall attitude of the uh, uh, Burger Court towards criminal justice cases? Uh, we learned a lot about the Warren Court and its approaches to criminal justice. How about did the uh, Burger Court establish a, a sort of worldview uh, during its time? Yes, I mean, what many people talk about the counter-revolution in criminal procedure wrought by the Burger Court. So the, the Warren Court had been known for establishing uh, many procedural protections in criminal cases, uh, such as the Miranda, famous Miranda warnings, the application of the exclusionary rule to the states for unconstitutionally seized evidence, the extension of the right to a jury trial in the states which had not uh, been mandated until 1968, the requirement of a right to counsel in all serious criminal cases for uh, defendants, which had also not been extended to all of the states. So that was the Warren Court's criminal procedure revolution. The Burger Court really tried to walk that back and establish many more limitations on the rights created by the Warren Court. In addition to death penalty, what are some of the criminal justice cases the court took on that established this reputation? Well, I uh, don't think that reputation, I think it's a bit overstated. I don't think it would qualify as a counter-revolution. They did uh, not push much further, and, and there were some cutbacks, but uh, I think on, on the whole it was a, a fairly mild correction to the huge change that happened during the Warren Court era. Well, let's listen to some of the arguments made. We're going to start <coughs> with the Georgia arguments, and the attorney, Jay Hugel Harrison, argued on behalf of Troy Gregg, and uh, the, the, representing the state was G. Thomas Davis, who was Georgia's assistant attorney general. And we're going to listen to first uh, Mr. Harrison and then the uh, Assistant Attorney General Thomas Davis. And then we come back. Uh, Carol, we're going to ask you to start with uh, telling us what you've heard in these lawyers' arguments before the court. Let's listen in. Greg, no prior record. He admitted he killed the people, but he said he did it in self-defense. Jury rejected it, and, and that apparently is the end of it. He's still suffering the death penalty, and he's under it today. Two of them. 
Your Honor, we submit that the 1973 law was an attempt to meet Furman, and it, does, and it hasn't done it. It still leaves that discretion both in the prosecution. I submit to you whether it's right or wrong, and I would be the first to admit that some discretion must be vested in a prosecuting attorney. We must have it. But is that to be unlimited, and is it to have the right to carry with it, you live, you die? If I understand the arguments of Petitioner and the arguments made yesterday and earlier, what is being complained of under the Eighth Amendment is arbitrariness in fact. Now, as I understand the case of Furman, it did not say that discretion was unconstitutional. But that arbitrariness or a system which led to arbitrariness in fact or the wanton and freakish imposition of a death sentence was what was unconstitutional. If so, and if that's the way I understand, and I was listening to the way he used the word arbitrary or arbitrariness, and he said spared for no meaningful basis, without rhyme or reason, without justification, no rational basis. If that is the standard, what has been shown about the Georgia procedure? Has arbitrariness in fact been demonstrated? To any degree. We maintain that what must be avoided is the wanton and freakish imposition. Not that everyone who should get a death sentence under a system of justice or a concept of justice, that a few escape. But have they even shown anyone escaping? Carol Steiker, what did you hear in those arguments? Well, really what the lawyers are arguing about is whether Georgia had done a good enough job in responding to the concerns that the court had expressed four years previously in Furman. You have to understand that prior to the decision in Furman, the way capital sentencing looked in the United States is that juries were given absolute and complete discretion so that at a capital trial, the instruction to the jury would be, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've heard the case. It's now up to you to render a sentence. And whether to give the death penalty or a sentence of life in prison or sometimes even a term of years less than life, that decision, ladies and gentlemen, is in your sole discretion according to your conscience. So the jury was given nothing at all to guide it. And that was essentially understood to be the key problem in Furman versus Georgia, what the court called standardless sentencing discretion, discretion without standards. So the new Georgia statute said you needed to find one from a list of aggravating factors, like that the murder took place during the course of another felony or that the victim was a police officer, so something to make the crime worse. And then the jury was to consider whether there were any mitigating factors that called for a sentence less than death. And the question, was that enough to cabin the unbridled discretion of the jury? The lawyer for Georgia was saying that it was. The lawyer uh, arguing on behalf of Greg was arguing that it was not. And he was pointing out something crucial, which is that the statute actually only dealt with the discretion that juries had in sentencing. It didn't deal with the discretion that prosecutors had. Um, so if there was a problem with discretion, the statute only addressed one piece of it.
So let's move on to the court's decision in this case. Uh, they announced it on July 2nd, 1976. Uh, that was a seven to two decision that the death penalty didn't violate the Eighth Amendment and that Georgia, Florida, and Texas laws were constitutional. A 5-4 for the North Carolina and Louisiana laws for a mandatory death penalty for some crimes being unconstitutional. Uh, and the plurality opinion was Stewart, Powell, and Stevens with three concurrences uh, uh, by Justice White, joined by Berger and Rehnquist, Blank and Blackman. Uh, two dissents, Brennan and Marshall. Well, here's a little of what the plurality opinion said. The punishment of death for the crime of murder does not, under all circumstances, violate the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. The argument that such standards require that the Eighth Amendment be construed as prohibiting the death penalty has been undercut by the fact that in the four years since Furman was decided, Congress and at least 35 states have enacted new statutes providing for the death penalty. And you would say? Well, I would say that's the grounds for the, the court's decision to, to roll back Furman. I think uh, if you're looking to uh, state legislative judgment, uh, if that's the standard, then 35 states is a lot of states. And uh, to understand more about the split with North Carolina and Louisiana, here's an excerpt from that plurality. North Carolina, unlike Florida, Georgia, and Texas, has thus responded to the Furman decision by making death a mandatory sentence for all persons convicted of first-degree murder, a process that accords no significance to relevant facets of the character and record of the individual offender or the circumstances of the particular offense, excludes from consideration the possibility of compassionate or mitigating factors stemming from the diverse frailties of humankind. And you would say... Well, I would say that that is consistent with the historical record of how the death penalty has evolved in America. Before Furman, uh, mandatory death sentences were virtually unknown. And these two states, along with a number of others, California, New York, and the Congress, enacted mandatory laws not because they thought it was good policy, but because they interpreted Furman as requiring it. Uh, so I think the court kind of owed the country an apology for having misled them in that regard, but it didn't include one in the opinion. Um, and it is, uh, it is true that mandatory death sentences for a large number of murderers will sweep in a lot of people that most people think, even though guilty and even though should be severely punished, don't deserve the death penalty. And it's not a good idea, and the court is correct that guided discretion is the better way to go. Justices Brennan and Marshall uh, dissented from this decision, and here's an excerpt from Justice Marshall. The American people fully informed as to the purposes of the death penalty and its liabilities would, in my view, reject it as morally unacceptable. Such a punishment has as its very basis the total denial of the wrongdoer's dignity and worth. You told us earlier that they were part of the block who uh, found this uh, from a moral standpoint. Uh, often in these cases, we find that the dissents have a great uh, deal of lasting significance. Does this just continue to muddy the waters on, on the view of the, on the death penalty? Well, it's interesting that you should bring up that aspect of Justice Marshall's dissent. That was the nature of his dissent in Furman and also in Gregg. And honestly, I never thought that it was a very good argument. And Justice Marshall says uh, it's not what people actually think. It's what, if they were fully informed about the death penalty, what they would think. And that's, I, I think, a kind of condescending argument. It's like arguing with someone and saying, well, if you were as fully informed as I am, you would clearly agree with me. That doesn't tend to be very persuasive. 
But what's really stunning about that argument, because I've made kind of gentle fun of it over the years in my classroom teaching uh, uh, the death penalty in, court, in classes, is that it turns out to have been actually very true of Justice Marshall's colleagues on the bench, that over the years, as justice, justice after justice, who's dealt with the death penalty for decades at, the, at a time, have changed their views about the death penalty, including some of the major players in Gregg. Um, in particular, Justice, Justices Stevens, Powell, and Blackman, uh, who all played a role in uh, the majority in Gregg, bringing the death penalty back, later said they agreed with Brennan and Marshall that the death penalty was unconstitutional. And so Justice Marshall's idea that those who know the most about the death penalty will come to see that it's uh, not to be supported has a lot of weight on the court. Uh, so where do you see this debate going in the United States, um, specifically regarded the, regarding the legality, the constitutionality, and the courts? Well, in the last 20 years, the use of the death penalty in our country has really fallen off a cliff. In the mid-90s, we were seeing 300 new death sentences a year, 100, almost 100 executions a year. Today, we have maybe 30 death sentences a year, maybe 20 executions, down 90, 80 percent from the peak in the 1990s. I think it shows the direction that our country is moving in, uh, and I think the death penalty is withering on the vine. Ken Scheidegger. Well, I think we have fewer executions for two reasons. Uh, one is fewer murders, and second is that both prosecutors and juries are being more selective in who they choose uh, to seek the death penalty and impose the death penalty. But I think that support for the death penalty in the very worst murder cases remains solid and remains valid. And I think the constitutional question was correctly answered in Greg, and that really, as far as the Constitution goes, should be the end of it. This is our 11th of 12 cases this season in Landmark Cases. Special thanks to the National Constitution Center for their help in uh, selecting the cases featured this season and also in uh, suggesting some of the guests who we bring to the table. And thanks again for your calls and, and tweets tonight. They've helped add it to the discussion. We appreciate you both being here, and you both have spent Thank a you. great deal of your career thinking about this important question. Thanks for sharing it with our audience. Thanks for Thank having you. me.